I would say you can start turning to somewhere in Matthew, but we're going to be a little bit of everywhere. So if you want to just kind of turn to the middle of Matthew so that you can go in either direction rather quickly, maybe more toward the beginning to start. Um, so we finished, we finished going through all of the, all of the, every chapter, every verse of Matthew last week. But before we move on, we didn't want to just say, well, we spent a year and a half going through all of Matthew, and now we're done moving on quickly. Um, we've done this in the past when we finished long sermon series where we kind of take a couple of weeks and just kind of look back for a minute and say, what were, some, what were the big things that we are taking away from Matthew? I know going into Matthew, we all have, we, going into any book study, you have certain expectations for what the book is about, but coming out, you might have seen your, your mindset around what the book is about or some of the focuses that the author had in there kind of shift just because you've, you've read it for so long and now you're looking back and like, oh, I hadn't realized that this was going to be such a key theme. Um, that's kind of been a thing for me and that's kind of what we're going to, we're going to talk about today. Um, so I'm, we're going to do a couple of weeks of review. I'm going to do a week of review this week. Caleb's going to do a week of review next week. And then after that, we're starting completely different stuff. Caleb's going to launch into a series on the theology of work, which I'm really looking forward to. And you really should be, too. I think it's going to be really, really interesting and really good for us. And then after that, we're going to go into a little bit uh, of a little... It's still a short series, but it's still going to be a little bit longer than just, like, two or three weeks. Uh, I'm going to do Song of Solomon for, like six, seven, eight weeks, and that's going to be really fun. But I've been, re for some reason, God has had that book on my heart as something that he wanted me to teach. And, and as I've been studying about it, I, th I think a lot of it is just looking at, at the relationship that the girl in the book has with the king and thinking about all the things that the king is able to do and all the things that the king has done for, for his bride. And, and the more I, and I think just, and I think that, my studying of Song of Solomon and thinking about the king and his kingdom has kind of been shaping what I've been pulling out of Matthew. Because uh, the more I look back, the more I keep thinking of this idea of Jesus as our king, Jesus, Jesus bringing the message of the good news of the kingdom of heaven. These, things that, these are the things that we're going to talk about today. Just what, what it looks like to have Jesus being our king and, what, and again, what the people were expecting when they were told the Messiah is here, your king is here, versus what it actually looked like in reality when he showed up to be their king at that time and how, and how different um, their expectations of what their king was supposed to be and what his actual representation of what being a king was supposed to look like, was going to look like. Um, and the more I think about it, I, I, I know I have used this metaphor to death, but I just want to use it one more time before we move on because I think it's so sets up what I want to talk about today. This idea that Jesus was um, the king that the people needed, but not the kind of king that they wanted. And I've used the example from the Dark Knight multiple times, but I'm just going to lay it out there so that we're all thinking the same thing. I'm, it, it all comes from the very end of the movie, so the movie came out like 10 years ago at this point, so I'm not worried about spoiling it for you. You've had your opportunity. So by the end of the Dark Knight movie, right... We've dealt with Joker. Joker's, Joker's no longer a problem. Batman is facing off with, with now, now kind of converted to chaotic mindset Harvey Dent, who's now Two-Face. And Sorry, where's you going? Spoilers. Here we go. So, and he's dealing with all of this. And, and in the end of his confrontation, Harvey Dent's laying there. 
uh, dead, and Batman says to Commissioner Gordon, you're going to have to tell them that I killed him. Because they need you, I, need, I need to be the villain now because he's the hero that the people need. They, they had in their mind a certain sort of salvation. He's like, I know that I can't be the hero for them right now. He's the hero they need, even though he's not really the hero that they deserve. Like, like Batman, and, this, and, and, and Commissioner Gordon goes off on this, this, this beautiful little monologue talking about how, how the people are looking for this white knight, this knight in shining armor who's going to come in and save the day, who's got, you know, these perfect good looks, he smiles really good, and he looks great on a poster. He's like... That's the one they think they need. That's the hero the people want, but that's not the hero the people need. The hero they, the people needed was this, this mysterious dark knight, Batman, right? Because we all need Batman. That's, that's, that's really the moral of all of Matthew, is that Batman is the hero that we all need. But these people had the expectation, that, and, 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 and he saw this, and so he says, I will let myself become the villain. I'll become the one who, who's going to take on all of this that I have to run, I have to hide, you have to chase me. All of this, because, because that wasn't what the people wanted, because they had bad expectations for what a hero was supposed to be, what salvation was supposed to look like. And all through Matthew, that's kind of what we've seen. Matthew keeps building this case. Hey, if you look back in the Old Testament, it points to Jesus in this way. Hey, if you look back in the Old Testament, it points to Jesus this way. Hey, if you look back over to this prophet or in this prophecy, in this specific mention of when the Messiah comes, this is what it's going to look like. All of these things are being answered in Jesus. And they're like, awesome. So he's this Messiah, this, this salvation that we've been waiting for. And every time he explains what his purpose on earth was, to come humbly to die, they're like, all right, pump the brakes. Really? You're not here to, to, to save us politically, to free us from this oppressive Roman government that, that's making our lives miserable? You're not here to restore the nation of Israel to its proper place of prominence in the world? That's not the kind of salvation you're offering? That's not the kind of king that we want. And that's not a new, that's not a new idea for them. We, we've just been reading in 1 Samuel. We've just finished reading 1 Samuel on Sunday nights. We're into 2 Samuel now. But, it, but at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, this is coming out of the time of the judges where, where God would just appoint someone to kind of oversee and make sure that Israel is going the right direction and, and kind of bring them out of some sort of whatever captivity that they had gotten themselves into because of their sin. And Samuel has been ruling over the people as their judge. And they come to him and they say, yeah, you're getting old. We're kind of tired of you being in charge. We want you to give us a king like all the other nations. Right? Just see, that's 1 Samuel 8, 5. At the end, they say, and, and I think that's the key, the key idea is that he says, now, they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations. Their idea of salvation, their idea of leadership was we want to look like what everybody else looks like. We're not trying to look different. We want to kind of become like our peers. We want a king like they have. We want somebody big and powerful and strong. And, and, and you know, and they get that in Saul, right? They get this guy who stands a head taller than everybody else, and he's massive. And didn't they call him beautiful? They probably called him beautiful, right? Like, this guy was just like, this is what a king is supposed to be. This is our idea of what we were wanting. And the people, by the time Jesus got there, 
were looking for that kind of a king who would come again. I mean, if you think back, how does Matthew open the book? In Matthew chapter 1, he just lays out the whole genealogy of Jesus, building the case that he is a descendant of Abraham, but also that he is a descendant of David. And he makes this reference, look, he is a son of David. And what are they going to think of David? Oh, that was our great military leader. We've been reading about this in 2 Samuel on Sunday nights. Like, he just kind of like goes in and lays waste to everybody, takes their cities, takes their stuff, takes their people, whatever he wants. I mean, he was just, like, this was, this was Israel at its, at its most powerful, at its most influential, at its richest. And this is what the people are thinking of when they're seeing, oh, this is the guy who's a descendant of David. This is the kind of king that we're thinking we're going to get. Powerful, rich, mighty, important, known throughout the whole world for his, for his political savvy and his, his military savvy. And Then they get a carpenter. He was born in a stable because his parents weren't really important enough to warrant getting a hotel room in the city. And this wasn't the guy that they were thinking they were going to get. And so John the Baptist kind of came before him and he was preaching this message. One, he, he was saying, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? And then Jesus comes along right after that with this simple message. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It's going to be up here. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a simple message. It wasn't, Hey, get ready. I'm about to come and establish this really rich and powerful kingdom. I'm going to overthrow Rome, and everybody's going to feel safe and peaceful and comforted. You're going to have all the things you need. You're not going to worry about where you're going to get money and food. Everything is going to be taken care of. Most of Jesus' message was that simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we're like, what does that mean? What What is the kingdom of heaven? It's not the type of kingdom that Israel assumed it was. Israel had been looking for a leader who was going to take all their pain away. He was going to make, make it more peaceful for them to live. And, and they weren't going to have to worry. But if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus kind of quickly counters that mindset. Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 34. He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He wasn't simply about coming and bringing peace and prosperity and comfort. right? He wasn't there to be a a, a political savior. He wasn't there to make their lives necessarily cushier and safer and less worrisome. right? In fact, he said, just by virtue of my being here, it's probably going to get harder. Like, because you're going to start following me and your family's going to reject you. 
they're not going to like it because they're going to say, you're following this guy who's not bringing us the kind of salvation that we want. And he's saying, if you don't love me more than them, you're missing the point. And then he even goes so far as to say, if you're not daily taking up your cross and following me. And remember, we just, we, just, we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but that was a terrifying image for the people. Take up your instrument of torture where you die over a period of several days while, while all manner of wildlife come and pick away at your body that's strapped onto a piece of wood and you're sitting out baking in the sun. That's what he's saying. He's not, it doesn't sound very comfortable. It doesn't sound very safe. That doesn't sound healthy and fun and enjoyable. That sounds terrifying. But he's saying that's what, it, that's what following me looks like. That's what the kingdom of heaven is on earth. The kingdom of heaven is a bunch of people who realize that Jesus is more valuable than comfort and safety and all of these other things that the world offers. And they're willing to sacrifice all those at the risk of, of facing pain and suffering because they realize that he is so worth it. He is so worth chasing after that they will go to whatever length it takes. Even if they lose all of their friends and family. Even if they lose all their comfort and money and food, whatever. He's worth it. That was his message. Go ahead and start turning over to Matthew chapter 16. I still think this is probably one of, to me the most important sections of this whole book. Because Jesus has been going around introducing this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And finally he gets to set, pull aside his disciples, his guys, that he's been living life with for a couple of years at this point. And in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to start in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? He said, it's time. This is where I'm asking you, what are you guys getting out of this at this point? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. If we just stop right there, that sounds really great. Like he says, who do you say I am? And he says, hey, uh, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've been hoping for, you are salvation, you are our hope. Right, that sounds awesome. We're excited to hear that. But the story keeps going on. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Even as Jesus is asking them this question, Who am I? And they're getting the answer right. You're the Messiah. You're the hope. 
Jesus says, all right, here's what it looks like to be the Messiah. Here's what it looks like to be the hope. It means I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Because that's what it takes to save you people. And they go, hold on. That's not what we had in mind. That's not the kind of salvation. There's no way that you're here to die. You're here to be our king, right? So even in in this moment where they're getting it and they're understanding it, and Jesus is like, yes, this is everything that I'm hoping that you would be saying. They still have the wrong expectations of what their king is supposed to be. They still don't understand what what kind of kingdom Jesus is talking about bringing to earth. They still don't understand what it's going to take for salvation to be made to be made complete and, and available to all of mankind. They, don't, they still don't see how all this is supposed to work. He's telling them that his purpose for being there, and they're like, we're not cool with that. Peter's like, I'm going to fight for you. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen, right? That, e- that, that even plays out down the road, right? When Jesus is in the garden, and they come to take him away, and we see G- Peter, obviously, because Peter... Right? Grabbing swords and start hacking at folks. Right? He, sa- he's, he says, I'm going to do everything I can to save this guy from death. And, and Jesus has to stop him and remind him, no, this is not who we are. This is not what we're supposed to be. This is not what we're all about. This is not how we're going to get salvation. We're not going to earn salvation by pulling out a sword and fighting people to the death so that we can make ourselves the most dominant force on the wor- in the world. That's not what salvation looks like. Even his closest friends couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of a humbled, suffering servant king. Which is so ironic because as you read through the Old Testament prophecies that Matthew keeps referencing, he keeps reminding us, he kept reminding us, all of these prophecies were pointing toward this kind of salvation. Someone who had to come, who had to die, who had to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who could be that perfect sacrifice for us. And if the closest people to him, those who had been traveling with him for years, still didn't really understand it, it's, it's not a surprise that the rest of the people didn't. Because you remember, he had lots of different types of people that were following him around. He had, he had his closest few. He had his, even though the people that were the closest to him didn't get it. It's not surprising that the others who were around him didn't get it as well. Right, we talked about, and this is what I was saying. We were talking about, we had different types of people that were following Jesus around. He had the closest few, his disciples, who were right there with him. And then he had, he had, he had followers, people who were, who were kind of in it, who were learning. And, and the disciples, the, it was more than just the 11. There were those around him. I and mean, we saw it in the, in the crucifixion story, where there were other, other women who were there. There were other people who had come around who were following Jesus, who were actually believers in who he was. He had that kind of a group around him. But then there were these crowds that followed him too that were really excited about the things he was doing but quickly turned on him, right? I mean, think back to, um, it was Matthew 21. I'm just going to read this. Matthew 21, I'll start in verse 6. This is after Jesus said, hey, go find me a ride. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's not surprising that, that they're seeing him doing all these amazing things and they're excited, right? And listen to their praise like, Hosanna, this is our salvation, this is our king, right? They're, they're, they're thinking back, like we said, to King David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the guy. This is what we're looking for. They're giving him a king's welcome. And we know how quickly that turned. Once they realized, once, once the Pharisees and the, other, and the other religious elite people were reminding them, he's not here to be your political savior. He's not here to overthrow Rome and set himself up as a king. And take away all your pain and worry about these sorts of things. I'm going to read one verse out of a different gospel. This is John chapter 1 verse 11. It says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right? The ones who had been given all of these promises, the ones who had been told the Messiah is coming, and here's how he's coming, and here's why he's coming, and here's what his purpose is going to be when he gets there completely missed the boat, completely misunderstood what it was they were waiting on, put all, their, put all their hopes in the political salvation basket, in the I want my life to be comfortable now mentality. We, and by we I mean humanity, not like we in this room. We've always thought that we, uh, we've always acted as though we had the opportunity to, to design the perfect leadership situation around us. Uh, I mean, we've gotten kind of spoiled in our country thinking we get to pick exactly who we want, and if we don't get who we want, well, I got a hashtag for you, hashtag not my president. I mean, think about the idea of, of hashtagging not my president. Basically, what you're saying is, I don't like this guy, I don't recognize his leadership over me, and I just want to make sure that nobody thinks that I'm cool with this, and I'm going to actually do everything I can to discredit and make people angry, or whatever. It's just, it's just one picture of how spoiled, as a people, we actually are. And on a smaller level... Um, I think it's a picture of how we selfishly wish to dictate our own sovereignty. Like, we don't like the idea of somebody else being in charge, especially if they do, don't do things the way we like. We don't like submitting ourselves to authority. We don't like submitting ourselves to different sorts of leadership. We don't like the idea of not being in control. We don't like the idea that there's somebody who's in a position of greater importance who can make decisions and we can't do anything about it. Whether you hate the way it is right now or you hated the way it was four years ago. But we're spoiled. 
We don't like losing. We don't like not having things go the way we want them to go. And so we moan and we cry and we whine. We say, this isn't how I want it to be. I should get to, we should be able to do things the way we want to do. We want to cast our own perfect picture of perfect. We want to cast our own picture of perfection in, in, in the role of leader of our lives. And if we do this on a small scale, and if we if we have this mentality of I don't like to submit to the leadership of somebody on like a small physical level, we probably do this with God too. And I think this is we're not too unlike Thomas Jefferson who went through his Bible and cut out the passages that he didn't like to submit to so that he wouldn't have to, like, like this is the Bible that I like. This Bible doesn't say anything about this or that. I, 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 don't, I believe this part of the Bible, but man, there's a couple passages back over here that I just don't really like the way it says it, and I don't think I believe that part. We'd rather take the parts that we feel comfortable with and kind of throw out the rest to make ourselves a bit more comfortable. We would rather reject or just kind of massage our interpretation of certain scriptures, either to make God look better or to make ourselves seem more palatable to the people that we're around, right? We'd rather soften the words so that we can make, make the things we say more approachable or relevant to the people that we're presenting the gospel to, that we're talking about who God is and, what, and who Jesus is and, and how they work and what salvation is and who we are as sinners, as broken people. We don't always like the parts, uh, we don't always like all the parts of God's character. But I think sometimes it's because we still think we know better <laughs> how things ought to work. Um, we have a better solution for salvation. We have a better solution for damnation. We have a better solution for whatever. Here's how I think it would be better. I don't like the idea that a God would punish people and send people to hell, so this is a better solution. I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my own salvation, so here, here's a better idea. We'd rather play a part in our own salvation. We don't like the idea that God creates evil for his own glorious purposes. And instead of loving God as he reveals himself to us, we soften the language of the Bible to make it more approachable or relevant. But here's the idea. When we destroy the true telling of who God is as he reveals himself to us in Scripture... We're essentially killing Jesus yet again because we see his message is dangerous. Why did they want to be rid of Jesus? Because the things he's saying, we don't like to hear. We want to silence him. How is that any different from saying, man, I see a whole lot of Bible right here that makes it sound like God is sovereign over absolutely everything. But to say he's sovereign over absolutely everything means he's sovereign over the bad things too. I don't like that. Let's say it this way. Let's say he foreknew. Let's say he knew it was going to happen, but he didn't, he didn't cause it. He didn't want it to happen. I don't see that in the Bible. But we see that as dangerous. We see that as, that's something that nobody's going to want to hear. They're not going to want to hear that. That's not going to be very palatable to people. So let's, let's come up with nicer ways of saying it. Let's come up with softer words so that people are more comfortable hearing, hearing about who God is as he reveals himself. 
Let's, let, let's reveal to them who God is as we reimagine the way he reveals himself so that they'll like it more. And then we'll hit them with the harder stuff after they get it. But if we're not giving people a clear picture of who God is and what salvation is and how all of this works, what are they actually being saved by if they don't have a clear picture of who Jesus is? If we're presenting a Bible with half the pages torn out, then they're not putting their faith in the God that we believe in. They're putting their faith in some man-made version of a God. We're essentially trying to silence the message of Jesus yet again. A lot of times I use Romans 9 to talk about specific specific pieces of theology. But I think that this kind of sums up well kind of where I am as I think back through the travesty that was the way the people wanted Jesus to be and what they did to him because he wasn't the kind of king they wanted. This is Romans 9, 20 and 21. Paul's saying to people who are questioning, why are you doing things this way? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's saying, you guys aren't God. You don't get to tell him who he is. You don't get to say what he's like. We don't get get to say, this is the kind of king that I want. We get the kind of king that he is. We get the kind of king that he represents himself as, that he reveals himself to us as. And we don't get to complain and say, no, I don't like that version of God. If you don't like that version of God, then you're just not following the God of the Bible. Because this is who he is, this is how he came, this is why he came. And we don't get to pick and choose the pieces of him that we're going to love and the pieces of him that we're going to reject. Let us not make the same mistakes that those who came before us and demanded a king back in, in 1 Samuel. Because we want a king that looks like everybody else's king. We want a king that... That we can say, our king's just like your king. Everybody gets saved by the king in the same kind of way. We're all going to end up in the same place. Yeah, you call your God Allah. You call your God Buddha. You call your God this. But we call our God Jesus. You know what? But you know what? Our king looks like your king. Your king. It's, all, it's all the same. These are not the same gods. And we can't allow our message to become so softened because of fear and so softened because we want, we want a version of salvation that is not what's being made available to us. We need to look back at the people in Matthew and say, look, they killed God because they didn't like the message that he brought. And we need to look at ourselves and say, how comfortable are we with God as he reveals himself? And how confident are we so that when we take the message, like we did last week, when we were looking at the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples, go talk about who I am. we got to be confident in the message that we've been given as revealed to us by God himself. He is the king that we need, and he came in the only way that he could come, that he could establish himself as our king and bring us into his kingdom.
It was the only way. He even prayed and asked God, if there's some other way. And God said, no, this is it. This is the way that salvation comes. And so for those of us who who are in Christ, let us be confident in who he is. Let us not feel like we need to soften our words. Let us not feel like we need to hold back. Let's let's just own Christianity for what it is. Let's just own it. We're reading the book in Guy's group, right? And it's just like, instead of like softening our words, instead of hiding behind nice-sounding little biblical, truths and phrases and stuff. Let's just keep Christianity weird. We believe in a God who performs miracles. We believe in a guy who died and came back to life. We believe in a guy who was born of a virgin. We believe in a guy whose who's coming to earth was announced by thousands of angels who appeared in the sky singing songs. This sounds like something that you see in a Disney princess movie, which is drawn and made up and fake. But we believe it, so let's own it, just as he reveals it. And let's be excited to talk about how amazing this story is that we've been given. Let's pray. God, It's so easy to become so selfish and say, I don't like this version of you. I don't like the way you're revealing yourself. I don't like the things that you're saying. I don't like, I don't like the way people think of me when I say that I believe you. I believe in you the way that you reveal yourself. But God, you said we're not always going to be comfortable we're not, you didn't come to make things more peaceful. In fact, it was going to be tougher for us for a while while you were here. God, make us people who are so confident and so passionately in love with you that we will chase after you no matter the cost. Even if the message that we bring that seems a little bit strange, that seems a little bit far-fetched, that, that maybe doesn't even always seem like the most logical thing to us, that we would just confidently take it because we just see how, how beautiful and how valuable you are and how worth chasing after you are. God, there are so many things that we can get distracted by. There's so many things that we can want more than you, but God, make yourself the thing that we want more than anything else. And make declaring the glory of who you are so much greater and more powerful to us. That we're not ashamed of any aspect of who you are. That we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We wouldn't be ashamed of the message of the kingdom of heaven. That the king that we're talking about is a king who came as a carpenter to die. But, but through his death made it possible for us to be welcomed into a kingdom that's going to last forever. God, make that truth resonate in us. Get us excited about this, that idea. 
that you are exactly as you've revealed yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.